0: Okay, Um, let's remind ourselves of the purpose of Wellspring and why we're all here this morning. Um, The theme verse that you see on the top of your paper is Proverbs 4.23, and it's where the name of our ministry comes from. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The ESV version says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And I think you guys are going to get to hear Jacob Hantla speak on that. Okay, Um, I think that's still in the future for Wellspring, but you're going to hear him teach on that verse in depth, and it's very encouraging. But I wanted to take a little bit of time to just look at the context of where this verse comes from. It's from Proverbs 4, obviously. Proverbs 4 is a whole chapter devoted to a father entreating his son to take care over his inner person. There's three sections in chapter four, and they both start, or they all three start with the words, my son is addressed to his son. And I just want to read to you guys, you can follow along if you want, or you can just listen the third, my son section, and it's the context for our theme verse. Starting with verse 20, he says, my son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure he's saying think about what you're doing with your life think about your ways do not swerve to the right or to the left Turn your foot away from evil. When I was kind of reviewing the disciplines and just looking at Proverbs 4, just where our verse comes from, I was kind of struck by all the mention of different parts that he's addressing in his son. He's saying, let your ears be attentive, let your eyes um, just keep rereading, keep putting God's word before them. So it seems like he's urging his son to um, think about what inputs he's allowing to affect his heart. He wants him to be intentional in making sure the input is God's wisdom. Then this father also tells his son to be mindful of what is coming out of him. He warns him about his speech, and he warns warns him to watch over his feet. We know that our speech flows out of what is in our hearts. Our speech lets us examine how we are doing shepherding our hearts. When the father mentions guarding your feet, he's talking about our way of living. Our feet are our decisions and our actions. So watching over our heart is a matter of watching over what we allow to influence us in our inner person, and we can use our output to evaluate what's going on in our inner person. So part of shepherding our inner person will come as a result of keeping devious speech away from our mouths and choosing to turn our feet from evil because in order to guard those outputs we're going to have to address the source of those outputs which is our heart all right we can move down to the purpose of Wellspring it is to encourage and to oh sorry to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose notice the tool that we're to use to shepherd our hearts the tool is the word of God. One thing that I hope you see from Hannah this morning is that she had a really firm understanding of who God is. Her, the second prayer that she prays when she's in the temple just reflects um, a heart that has been meditating on God's character, on who he is. Our prayers reflect what we meditate on. So when we shepherd our hearts with the word of God, we're going, going to be able to pray like Hannah did when she presented Samuel at the tabernacle then our first discipline has to do with our hearts. It says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. This lesson on Hannah is a wonderful example of a woman who prayerfully shepherded her heart. She is also a good example of a woman who allowed others to help her shepherd her heart. She accepted input or shepherding from others in spite of their sin. She exemplified humility in this aspect of her life. Then discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And then our third discipline, which is about ministry, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Um, If you guys have your outline for Hannah, you can go ahead and turn there, and you can turn to 1 Samuel 1 as well. All right, well, I really enjoy reading biographies, and aside from really sweet children's books and maybe cleverly written children's books... Um, biographies are my my next favorite genre of book. Biographies are fun to read because a biography is a story. It's the story of a real person and even the biography of a not-so-great person can be interesting. Their story can evoke compassion from us because when we read about someone's life we see them as a person who, like us, was born into a world of sin We can identify with them in that they were born into a setting that they didn't choose for themselves, it was chosen for them, and yet this person, like us, was born into a world that experiences much of God's grace and provision. And it's just interesting to see what shapes a person and to learn why they make the choices that they did. Have you ever read a biography and then become intrigued by kind of a side character in that person's life? Well, the book of 1 Samuel is primarily about Saul and David, Israel's first two kings. There's a significant character in this book, and his name is Samuel. He was the last of the judges. He was a godly man. He experienced favor with God and men. God spoke to him, and God worked through him for a long time. Samuel was the one who led the nation in feasts and offerings to God. He was the one who helped them repent, if you remember the Philistines' captured the ark of God, and um, the ark was later returned to Israel, but it was left in this kind of a rural town and kind of forgotten about. And after 20 years of it being gone, the people came to Samuel and said, okay, we're sorry. What do we need to do? He helped them repent at that point. He anointed Saul to be the first king. He prayed for Israel as a nation, and he warned them about selecting a human king. He was the one who passed on God's word of condemnation to Saul, letting Saul know that God was taking away the kingship from him. Samuel was the one who anointed David to be the king after Saul. And at the end of Samuel's life, the people of Israel had nothing bad to say about him personally. He is also listed in that famous Hall of Faith chapter in the New Testament in Hebrews 11. Samuel was a good leader in a rough time. He stands in sharp contrast to Eli, the previous spiritual leader of Israel, and he stands in Sharp contrast to Eli's sons, as well as to the next leader of Israel, who is Saul. This morning, we're going to meet a side character in Samuel's biography. There's a woman behind this man, and it is Hannah, his mother. So I've titled the lesson, The Holy Spirit's Biography of Hannah. And then I have a little subtitle, A Woman Who Exemplified Humility, Prayerfulness, Love, and Faith. So we're going to break up this biography, as I've been calling it, into four sections. First, we're going to talk about Hannah's hardship, then her humility. The third one is Hannah's homework for an homage to Yahweh. And then Hannah's harvest is our last one. So let's pray, and then we'll start reading 1 Samuel 1. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, thankful for your word. We're thankful for this church and for this group of women um, who have been Faithfully meeting on Saturdays, um, I think since September or maybe August. God, I just pray that this morning would be beneficial to everyone who is here and who um, maybe is going to be listening in the future. I just ask God that Your Word would do its work, that um, Your Holy Spirit would use Your Word to convict us of sin where we need to be convicted and encourage us where we need to be encouraged, um, give us hope where we need to have hope and Just allow us to see glimpses of you, um, to see parts of who you are in your character that we need to see. God, I pray that we would all grow, um, that we would become more like Christ, and that we would love you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I'm going to drink something really fast. My throat is, like, dry. All right. Okay, we're going to read um, verses 1 to 8, first of all, and this is going to be the setting in which we find our character, but before we look at her specific setting, I want to talk about the general setting in which Hannah lives. Hannah lived in the time of the Judges. The last verse in the book of Judges says, as you probably know, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's kind of scary. Let me just remind you of some of the stories from the book of Judges. There was a young man named Micah, and he stole some um, money from his mother. And with that money, he made a metal image. Then he built a shrine for it. And then he hired his own personal Levite to be his priest at his house for him. About that time, um, some people from the tribe of Dan kind of happened upon Micah's house, and they decided they wanted to steal all of Micah's household gods. Then they also stole his metal image, and they stole his priest. And then they went to a place that the Bible says was a quiet and unsuspecting town. They burned the town down with all the people in it. Then they rebuilt it and set up their own town with this metal image and lived there with that priest. So that's just one one story. There's another story about a Levite whose concubine left him, and he went back to get her from her father's house. As they were traveling home, they stop at the city of Gibeah, which is in Benjamin, and he offers his concubine to the men of the city to molest instead of him. And that happened, I guess it was, yeah, it was at night, and then in the morning, she, he opens the door and she's dead, and he puts her on his donkey, they go home, or he goes home, and he um, sends pieces of her body to all the tribes of Israel to make a statement about the debauchery and the sinfulness of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's the environment and the culture in which Hannah lives. Not only is that going on in the nation of Israel, there's a lot of fighting going on with the nations outside of Israel. So there was just a lot of unsafety. It was not stable. Um, In terms of scripture and revelation, Hannah would be able to hear God's word from the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The book of Joshua would have been written down by this time, and then they added that to the Pentateuch. So she really has six books of the Bible. That's what her scripture, her Bible is. And then we know from 1 Samuel 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in her days, and there were no frequent visions. So there were some people receiving prophecies and words from the Lord, but it wasn't often. Now, let's go ahead and read the first. Actually, I'm going to read the first half of verse 9, because it kind of goes along with it. Okay, you can follow along. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Okay, there are a few characters to take notice of in this introduction. There is Hannah's husband. Her husband's second wife, Penina, Eli the priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phineas, and then Penina's sons and daughters. We get information on Hannah's husband, Elkanah. First, she is married to a Levite. Elkanah lives in Ephraim, but he is from the tribe of Levi. And as you probably remember, the tribes of Le- or the tribe of Levi was not given a land inheritance, but they were allotted portions of land in other parts of and other tribes in which to live and farm. The Lord was their inheritance. So these Levites were to serve at certain times in the tabernacle or the temple later on. They were going to just maintain the items in the place or help with um, leading singing. There's a record of Elkanah's lineage in First Chronicles 6 that lists his ancestors and his descendants who served in the temple. We can infer from the order in which the wives are listed, that Elkanah married Hannah first. Since she was unable to conceive children, it seems that he married Penina. Now this was somewhat common in their culture because of the importance placed on passing on a name and passing on land to children. This was not God's plan for marriage and it never has been. From the beginning God set up marriage to include just a husband and a wife. In Genesis 2 we see the first marriage. God instructed that a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular. The word is singular, and the example with Eve alone is singular. And then it says, and they shall become one flesh. In Jesus' earthly ministry, when he taught about marriage, he reiterated that truth, that from the beginning, God made it known that he had created male and female, and that the two should become one flesh, and they were not to be separated as long as they both lived. So the math is simple, to become one. We also know that the qualifications for pastors and elders in the church is that they are a one-woman man. So even though polygamy has never been God's design for marriage, it was somewhat common in the Old Testament. And I say somewhat because only a man who was moderately wealthy could afford more than one wife. So it's mostly kings that we see having multiple wives. But this is the reality we find Hannah in. She is the first wife of Elkanah, and he married another woman to bear children. We also see that Elkanah is a faithful worshiper of Yahweh, and he leads his entire household in this worship. They live anywhere from 10 to 25 miles from Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle is located, and it's also where the Ark of God is housed, which is where the specific presence of God was in Israel. And that's only going to be for like part of Samuel's life. I mean, he'll still be a child, basically, when that's taken away. So this family would go up to Shiloh for the required feast each year. Now, only the men were required to go up, but this entire family went faithfully, and we can only infer that this was due to Elkanah's leadership. Elkanah would offer to the Lord sacrifices, and he would worship, and then he would eat with his family as the law prescribed. He would give portions to everyone, and then to Hannah, it says he would give a double portion. There is just a lot of evidence in this biography of genuine love and affection between Elkanah and Hannah. Her husband loves her, and his love is expressed in actions and words. He gives double to her, just showing honor and affection. He also tries his best to comfort her, um, and he tries to help her when she's distressed. He seems to later on we'll see that he seems to respect her as a godly woman and he trusts her decisions. Even though Hannah wants so desperately to have children, there's no evidence that Hannah is angry with her husband or with God. At least as far as Scripture records for us, rival wives occur other times in Scripture. One example is Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. Even though Sarah was the one that came up with the idea for Abraham to take Hagar as another wife, Sarah becomes bitter towards Hagar and toward Abraham for it, which seems so obvious, (laughs) but anyway, it was different. So it wasn't right that Elkanah took a second wife, but Hannah demonstrates humility and an ability to love her husband in spite of his poor decision, and it was a poor decision that cost her greatly in her daily life. There really is a sweet love between these two, amazingly, in spite of their circumstances. Next, we see that Penina is not only fertile, but she is feisty. She especially liked to irritate Hannah whenever they would go up to worship God. And it may have been because it was so obvious who Elkanah preferred at those moments, you know, when he's giving her double, or maybe it was because Elkanah and Hannah both worshiped God. There was a unity there in their worship and love for God that maybe she didn't share in. Whatever the motive, we know that Hannah or that Penina was just relentless in her goading of Hannah. The Bible says that she would provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her, and the reason why is because the Lord had closed her womb. So she's picking the thing that Hannah has no control over, the thing that she wishes she could change, and that's what she's choosing to um, cause excessive sorrow over. So this goes on year after year. What is the result of this setting? Barren but loved living with a second wife and her children, mocked and provoked by Penina, desiring greatly to be a mother. Verse 7 says, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. There were laws about not partaking in the feast of the Lord when one was mourning. So maybe um, Hannah felt like she couldn't just celebrate peace with God that comes from the sacrifice. Or maybe she actually just um, felt physically sick and didn't feel like she could eat. But the feast was intended to be a joyful time. It was a time to rejoice in your peace with God that he grants through sacrifice. Now her husband, Elkanah, is sad to see Hannah so distressed, and he tries to encourage her, and maybe he's even gently rebuking her with the reality of his love for her. They both know there's nothing that either one of them can do to open her womb. It says the Lord had closed her womb. They knew it was from the Lord. However, they had each other, and Elkanah loves her greatly. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on First Samuel 1, writes, Our sorrow, upon any account, is sinful and inordinate when it diverts us from our duty to God and embitters our comfort in Him, when it makes us unthankful for the mercies we enjoy and distrustful of the goodness of God to us in further mercies, when it casts a damp upon our joy in Christ and hinders us from doing the duty and taking the comfort of our particular relations and then he quotes scripture it's his older version it says am am i not better to thee than ten sons thou knowest thou hast my entire affection and let that comfort thee and then he says we ought to take notice of our comforts to keep us from grieving excessively for our crosses for our crosses we deserve but our comforts we have forfeited if we would keep the balance even we must look at that which is for us as well as that which is against us else we are unjust to providence with a capital p and unkind to ourselves god hath set the one over against the other ecclesiastes 7:14 and so should we so in other words we need to be able to recognize that our sorrow is as he says inordinate which means just excessive when it keeps us from obeying god and keeps us from taking comfort in him god is the god of comfort and we need to repent of any sorrow that keeps us from taking comfort in him. It's only to our joy that we trust the goodness of God in the midst of our sorrow. Matthew Henry instructs us to take notice of our comforts because they will keep us from grieving excessively. He cites Ecclesiastes 7.14, which says, God has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. So then Hannah, to her credit, accepts Elkanah's words of comfort which is why I read the first half of verse 9, because it says they went ahead and ate and drank together in Shiloh. So Eli, or Elkanah's words may or may not have been truly comforting to her, but grace, humility, and love cause us to take comfort from those who love us and intend to comfort us, even if it's not exactly what we want to hear or how we want to be comforted. After her husband talks to her and tries to comfort her with his love, she chose to eat and drink with him. She, wasn't, she chose not to continue crying and continue feeling bad for herself. Um, she made a choice with her will, and that choice flowed out of the godly character of her inner person. Okay, so we understand the setting of Hannah's biography. Let's move on to the next section. The next section, verses 9 to 20, I've summarized as Hannah's humility. We've already seen a lot of evidence of that characteristic in Hannah already, but it's even more evident in this next section. It's inspiring and it's convicting. So as I read verses 9 to 20, look for autobiographical material on Hannah. Up till now, we just have the Holy Spirit's descriptions of Hannah. But now she's going to kind of talk about, she's going to describe herself. And we're going to see kind of interpret her own interpretation of her setting. And then also just take notice of what Hannah is like after she prays at the temple. Okay, so verse 9. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So first off, we've already noticed that Hannah exemplified humility in her choice to eat and drink with the family in the feast to Yahweh. So her heart still, even though she's chosen to do what's right, her heart is still in turmoil. And we see... Pretty much as soon as it seems like as soon as this feast is done, she just rushes out to go pray on her own. We see that Eli, the priest, is sitting in the temple. He's overseeing the affairs in the place of worship to God. The Holy Spirit tells us that Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord. And again, she's weeping bitterly. Can you identify with Hannah? Can you identify with being deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, crying out to your maker? knowing that only He can give you the comfort and the help that you're seeking. Two verses come to mind when I imagine this scene. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, which says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. And then the 1 Peter 5 of the Old Testament, which is Psalms 55, 22. Cast your burden on Yahweh, And he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Hannah is casting her burden on the Lord at this point. Did you notice Hannah's description of herself? She says that she's afflicted. Hannah calls herself Yahweh's servant. She says it three times while she's praying. When she talks to Eli, she describes herself as a woman who is troubled in spirit, who had not been drinking strong drink, but she's been pouring her heart out and her soul before Yahweh. She's one who's been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. And then again, she calls herself a servant, but this time she's calling herself Eli's servant. So Hannah sees herself as weak, troubled, distressed, unable to do anything about her situation except to pray and pour her heart out to Yahweh. She does not see God as her servant, but she is his. She's in an undesirable situation, according to the wisdom of the world but she's in the best state when it comes to spiritual matters. God does not despise a broken and a contrite heart. One commentator wrote, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks— Then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. There are some encouragements we can take away immediately from this biography of Hannah. God used the intentional, mean-spirited provocation of Penina, as well as Hannah's barrenness, to drive Hannah to desperate prayer. Her heart was in, in agony, and she knew of only one recourse, and that was prayer. She cast herself upon Yahweh and poured out her soul to him. Not only can you and I most likely identify with Hannah and feel like imagining that kind of agony and brokenness, but there's someone who can identify perfectly to an even greater degree. Notice the parallel with Jesus. Luke 22 says that Jesus was in agony of spirit before he was arrested to be crucified. Verse 44 of Luke 22 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Hannah's agony of heart, or our own, Certainly can't be put on the same level as Jesus' agony over the anticipation of bearing sin and its just punishment. But we can be encouraged that our sympathetic Savior knows what it is to be in agony of spirit. It led Jesus to pray, it says, more earnestly. If that's what he did, that's certainly what we must do. It's what Hannah did. Notice also the specific request of Yahweh that Hannah makes. In verse 11, we see that she's making a vow. She's asking something of God, and she's promising something to him. She asked three things of Yahweh. First, she asked that God would look on her affliction. It's like she's saying, Lord, I know you know all and you see everything, and I can make an appeal to your mercy and loving kindness and ask you to notice and look on my affliction. It's hard and it's heavy. Please look at this and see my broken heart. And then secondly, she asked that Yahweh would remember her and not forget her. Please remember me, your servant. I am yours. I belong to you. My role is to serve you. I don't see you as my genie in the bottle or as my servant. I am yours, and I'm asking you to remember me and not forget me in light of what's troubling my heart. Then thirdly, she asks specifically for a son. She doesn't ask for many children. She just asks for one. She would be happy with just one, and she prays specifically for a male child, a son. She wants to be able to raise up a son who can serve God and belong to Yahweh's service in a special way the entirety of his life. This would be joy to her. She would love to have a child whom she could love and train and give back to God. She promises that she would give him back to Yahweh, that she would keep him under a Nazarite vow for the whole of his life. And even the Levitical service that her husband was a part of was temporary. It was only for periods of time as uh, the Nazarite vow was supposed to be the same way, or not supposed to be, but it was generally the same way. It was just temporary. So neither being a Levite or, um, well, the service of a Levite or the Nazarite vow were expected to be lifelong um, in terms of a vow or in terms of service. The only other example of a lifelong vow for a Nazarite was Samson, and he was a judge before Samuel. For those of you who are at the women's retreat this summer, You remember that Josh taught on prayer. When he taught on Daniel's prayer from Daniel 9, he brought out the truth that prayer is not God submitting to what we think should happen. Daniel asked God for great things for himself and for the Hebrew people, but they were things that God had promised. Now Hannah had not been promised a son, but it's clear she viewed herself as the one who would submit to God, not God to her. She is God's servant. She also knows that he's powerful and he's able to answer her requests if he would choose to do it. One of the big takeaways for me from the retreat was what Josh taught on um, praying in Jesus' name. He said praying in the name of Jesus is praying according to God's will. It's praying consistently with who Jesus is. He said if our prayers are rooted in selfishness, then we're not praying in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name is a heart motive. Now, obviously, Hannah didn't tag on in Jesus' name. At the end of her prayer, she didn't know the name of Jesus yet. But it's evident that Hannah's prayer was not rooted in selfishness, but in a desire to see God glorified and in a, in a desire to see to serve God by raising a godly son. Verse 12 says that Hannah continued praying before Yahweh. So there's more that Hannah was praying that we don't know about. It's not recorded. We don't know what it is. But what we do know is that Hannah had confidence in God's ability and his willingness to hear her prayers. It's according to his character to hear the prayer of the humble and destitute and to take notice of hearts that are wholly his. She belongs to God and she trusts him, and she also feels the freedom to ask for the deepest desire of her heart. So Eli sees her mouth moving, and he doesn't hear any words, and he assumes the worst, and he is very wrong. Eli's assumption is understandable when you consider the way that sin was abounding and the way it was manifested at that time in their culture, and maybe even especially even in the temple. We know that Eli's sons were sexually immoral and greedy, and they were kind of um, putting pagan practices of worship under the banner of Yahweh worship. So even though that's kind of the setting, Eli's not off the hook. Um, there's a good reminder for us here. Proverbs 18:13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Eli indeed acted foolishly. He rebuked Hannah, and he was completely wrong. But here again, we get to see the grace and humility that reside in Hannah's heart. Hannah could have thought, could have looked at her situa- situation this way. She could have thought, man, I have been unjustly provoked by Penina for years. For something that I have no control over. I want so badly to be a mother and I'm constantly reminded that I'm not and that I'm not going to be for um, as soon as for any time in the near future. Um, My husband has lovingly rebuked me to remember the good things that I have, namely his love for me. And even though it was loving, it's still hard to be rebuked. And here I am. I've come to pray in the temple and pour my heart out before the Lord. And now the spiritual leader of Israel is now rebuking me for something that's unjust. And it could have made her feel like she wanted to snap at Eli. In fact, she's, she could have brought up things that would have been valid about Eli's character and his sons and the way he was raising them, but that is not at all what she does. Um, what do we see come out of her mouth? We see only the evidence of grace and humility that reside in her heart. She's in a dark hour. She got bumped. What comes out of her heart was not bitterness or anger. Her humility toward Eli is sweet. Hannah does not repay evil for evil. She does give an account of herself to Eli to correct his misconceptions of her. She did it so sweetly and so transparently that Eli is moved from one end of an impression of her to the opposite. She tells him that she hasn't been drinking, but she's troubled in spirit. And she's pouring out her soul before the Lord and speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. She also calls herself Eli's servant. She sees him as an authority and she honors him in that role. And she speaks to him in a manner according to the respect that she has for his position. I also think it's interesting to note that Hannah doesn't feel the need to tell her tale of woe to anyone other than God. She doesn't take this opportunity to tell Eli um, all about Penina and the years of hardship that she's had with this woman. Um, She doesn't even tell Eli specifically what she's been asking God for so that he can pray for her, you know, under that um, pretense in some some ways. Now, we do have the privilege of praying for each other, but our hope is not in other people or their prayers, but in God himself. She knows that she has left her request with the only one who can do anything about her situation. It demonstrates where her faith is placed. She doesn't seem to lay the burden of her unmet desires on her husband, and she doesn't do that now with Eli either. Eli, to his credit, is not defensive in explaining himself to Hannah and why he made such a horribly wrong rebuke, but he just pretty much does a 180, and he basically gives an amen to her prayer. It's a prayer that he doesn't really know the details of, But he seems convinced that this woman making the appeal to Yahweh is humble and she's godly. He truly believed her to be innocent of what he had rebuked her for. And so he just says, so be it, to her prayer. And I hope that God answers whatever you've been praying to him. And then now we're to the part that I find so encouraging. Hannah leaves the temple and it says she ate and her face was no longer sad. Was Hannah pregnant? No. Was she certain that she would become pregnant? I don't think so. This is encouraging because we know it's possible to have joy without the desires of our heart being met. We can cast our cares on the Lord and walk away with a joyful countenance. It's possible. Matthew Henry, again, I'm going to quote him. In his commentary, he writes, Hannah believed that God would either give her the mercy that she had prayed for or make up the want of it to her some other way. So she didn't have a promise that God was going to give her what she would prayed for. Even Eli saying amen to her prayer isn't necessarily um, a supernatural revelation for her that, that was going to happen. Um, it's just that she trusted God. Her countenance changed because she had poured out her heart and her soul before the Lord. She trusted him, and she knew that he would do what is right. says so the next morning, the family rises early. They worshiped before the Lord and then they went back home to Ramah. It seems that right away, Hannah experiences the answer to her prayers. Verse 19 says that Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's the exact wording from Hannah's prayer. She asked Yahweh to remember her, and he did. He knows the details of our lives. He sees it all. He remembered Hannah, and she conceived. She had a son, the son she had asked for. And what did she name him? She gave him a name that would remind her every time she called him to herself, every time she said it, that God had heard her prayer. She named him Samuel, which means I have asked for him from Yahweh. Samuel's name would also be a reminder to Samuel himself of the prayer that his mom had made for him before he was created. It would remind him of her dedication of him to Yahweh for all the days of his life. One of the commentators I read gave a personal account of his own childhood that I thought was really sweet he said his family was really consistent in family worship and his dad led it but whenever his dad was out of town his mom would lead the family worship and he said he always half dreaded it the reason was that at the end of bible reading she would pray for each of the five she had five boys she would pray for each of them by name and he said to hear his mother's heart expressed in prayer and to know that they were hers but she wanted nothing more than that they would each belong to God was so moving to him as a boy, he would often have tears in his eyes at the end of prayer time, and he was the youngest, and he didn't want his brothers to see him crying, which is why he half-dreaded those nights, but what a gift to have a mom who wants nothing more for her child than that he or she belongs wholeheartedly to the Lord and who prays to that end. All right, so, so far in Hannah's biography... We've seen the setting, which is her hardship. We've seen her humility on display in her prayers and in her interactions with her husband and Eli, and even in the name that she gives her son. Now we're going to see her heart expressed in her work at home as a mother for the first probably three years of Samuel's life. Then we'll see the honor and the homage she gives to God when she goes back to the temple to present Samuel to the Lord. So let's go ahead and read um, verses 21 to 26. This is just a really brief picture of Hannah's homework or her work at home. It says, The man Elkanah in all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah has given birth to Samuel. Now it's time to go up to Shiloh to offer sacrifices before the Lord and to feast before Yahweh. And it says that Elkanah himself, he had a vow to pay before the Lord as well. So it's possible that Elkanah had made a previous vow Um, separate from Hannah's in case maybe his beloved wife ever did have a child and now maybe he's going to fulfill his end of it we don't know exactly what it was but he had something that he needed to do before the Lord Hannah tells Elkanah that she's not going to go up this time she's going to stay home until she's weaned Samuel Elkanah trusts her decision and her resolve and this is just another little window into their marriage there is mutual trust and respect between these two in the Old Testament law, a woman's vow to Yahweh could be canceled by her husband if he didn't agree with it. So obviously, Elkanah was in in agreement with Hannah's vow that she'd made on her own in the temple before Eli or before Samuel was conceived. So Elkanah just says, "Okay, do what seems best to you. Only may Yahweh establish His word." It just it may be Elkanah's way of saying, "May God keep Samuel safe through the dangers of infancy, so we can um, complete or have." this vow come to fruition. Seems that God has already granted half of it. We have the son, but let's pray that we get to fulfill this vow that that you've made to the Lord. We see that Hannah's homework, her work at home, is very important to her. She most likely nursed Samuel until he was three. That's what almost pretty much everyone said about that time period. So she had a really short time to take care of him, to hold him, enjoy him, and train him. She wanted to make the most of the time that she had and not leave him with anyone else to nurse him while she left to visit Shiloh. So again, I, since it's so close to Shiloh, in my head I'm like, why don't you just take him? He's little, but it wasn't even an option for some reason. So she either had the choice to leave him with someone else or to stay home, so she chose the latter. So all we really can observe concretely from this text is that during those three years she made staying at home and taking care of Samuel her priority. So we know that Samuel had to have been prepared at home for what was going to go on with the rest of his life. Think about what kind of training must have taken place so that a three-year-old is not left kicking and screaming and crying after his mom when he is dropped off at the temple. And he's being dropped off not just to be taken care of, but to help out. So there had to be a lot of training regarding authority and obedience so that when Hannah and her husband's authority is transferred over to Eli, Samuel's not surprised. He's prepared for it. Hannah was the first one to teach Samuel about Yahweh. She was the one who directed his learning and his interest. She was intentionally preparing him for a lifetime of service to Yahweh. When it was time and Samuel was weaned, Hannah and her husband take Samuel along with sacrifice offerings to the temple in Shiloh. There is no sense of sorrow or sadness in this scene. There's only joy and exultation of God, and a sense of amazement at God's kindness to her. This is where we see the greatest evidence that Hannah's desire for a child was not idolatrous. She had not been asking God just to get something that she wanted. Hannah was given to the Lord. Remember, she sees herself as God's servant. And she wanted the privilege of giving herself to a child in order to give him back to Yahweh. The phrase that says, as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, just seemed to ring in my ears as I restudied this passage. This was no temporary lending. It's not a year, three years, even ten years. It's as long as he lives, he belongs to Yahweh. He's not mine, is what Hannah was saying. Hannah, no doubt, had motherly influence on Samuel, but her influence was purposely to point him to serving Yahweh. So Hannah presents Samuel to Eli, and as she calls it, she lends him to Yahweh to dwell before God at the temple in Shiloh. This is where we see her give homage to God. She prays again. So let's read her prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn." The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This time, Hannah's prayer is not silent, just between herself and God. It is a praise that's spoken, and it's meant to be heard. It's to God, and it's for the benefit of those who are near enough to hear it. And we can add near enough to hear by reading scripture. She wants to give praise where praise is due. She says that her heart exalts, her strength is exalted in Yahweh. God has answered her prayer, and she who was without strength, who is desperate, unable, grieving, vexed, distressed, has strength. But it's strength that's given to her from God. It's not her own. Notice that the object of Hannah's praise is Yahweh. She does not even mention Samuel by name. She seems to overlook the gift and just praises the giver. I'm actually struck by the lack of mention of Samuel. Hannah didn't speak about how wonderful and smart and handsome this miracle baby was. She was truly more in awe of the one who had given her this gift than in awe of the gift itself. Matthew Henry writes, Every stream should lead us to the fountain. There may be other Samuels, but no other Yahweh. What does Hannah know about God? She knows that there's no one who is completely holy or set apart like Yahweh is. He is the only God, and he's a rock. That means he's stable and a protector. Hannah had found relief and comfort in that aspect of Yahweh. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Verse 5 says that Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and he weighs the actions of men. He sees into the heart. He can observe the motives behind the actions. So because of that, there's no room for arrogant speech from any person. She knew that God was intimately knowledgeable of her own heart as well as every human heart. In the rest of her prayer, she talks about God in relation to different categories of people. There's positive categories and there's negative categories, and they're all kind of intermixed. She talks about the mighty, those who are full, those who have borne seven children. She talks about the wicked and the adversaries of Yahweh, the feeble, the hungry, the barren, the needy, the poor, and faithful ones. So there are people who are strong and who seem to lack nothing in worldly comforts, who have all they've desired, but then in a moment... God can make them poor and needy, lacking and desperate. And it's just as easy for him to flip it the other way. For those who are poor and hungry and barren to become wealthy and full and abounding with children. So all these categories have one thing in common. And that is that God is in control of the setting and the circumstances. And he can change anyone's setting and circumstance according to his will. And as we've been learning in Ecclesiastes, it's not necessarily a direct correlation between The way we're living, and then what situation or setting we find ourselves in. But we can trust that God is totally in control of every single situation. Um, She says, Yahweh kills, he brings to life, he brings down to Sheol and he raises up, he makes rich and he makes poor. So regardless of our situation, we can be sure that we are in God's hands. We are not the masters of our own fate. The earth belongs to him. He is the one who sustains and supports it. And then notice the personal comfort we can take in verse 9. She says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He's protecting the way, the path of his children for our good, because he is good and he's merciful. So he is in control of our circumstances, but that's not all. He's actually guarding. He's protecting our way. It's our specific way that he's guarding. So as dismal as a situation may be, we can trust that God has not just dropped us into a hard setting, but he's actually um, protecting and guiding the specific path we're walking. And that is not true for God's adversaries. He is in control of their circumstances, absolutely, but he is not protecting their way. So that is the difference. Those who are against him, their path will be cut off in darkness. It's like their path as comfortable and strong and luxurious as it may seem to be to us. It just runs right into a wall, and the only place they find themselves is in darkness. And they're, it says they're broken in pieces, being judged by Yahweh. Hannah knows that God will judge the ends of the earth. She also knows that God will give strength to his king. That's an interesting reference because there's no king in Israel at this time. But Hannah has heard that there is a promised seed. It was specifically promised to Eve, and that seed was going to set people free from Satan. She knows that Moses has said in the Pentateuch, that the scepter, which is the rod of rulership, is going to belong to the tribe of Judah, and it's not going to pass from that tribe. So she knows from scripture that there is a king, a ruler, a seed that's been promised by God. She's looking forward to this promised king, whom she calls God's anointed. The English word Messiah represents the Hebrew word that Hannah uses here, anointed, Hannah has hope in God's future plan for human history, specifically hope in this king and messiah. Hannah's prayer reveals a heart that is grounded in the knowledge of God's character. She knows that God possesses a macro rule over the universe, and he has a micro rule over the little circumstances of each individual. She knows that God is kind and specially protective of his faithful ones as they live and move up on the earth. He also has a long-term plan for all of human history. And it culminates in this Messiah. The anointed king from Yahweh. Her love for God pours out of this prayer. And her humility is again on display. How could she be anything but humble. With this view of God. Now the last section. For Hannah's biography. I've just kind of tagged on. Do you guys have references listed? I don't know if I even gave that to you Michelle. Okay. So it's I just listed verses from chapter 2 and then you could add on I don't think I put this chapters 3 to 12 that Samuel dies in chapter 12 so it just kind of fills in you can find different bits and pieces of Samuel's life because the fruit the harvest that we're going to talk about from Hannah's life really is seen in Samuel's life after he left her home Samuel's godly influence is fruit that's produced by God And though it's ultimately God who gets the credit, the sowing of the seeds and the watering of those seeds was Hannah's God-given work. Samuel's character and life of ministry is no small thing. God used Samuel to set the foundation for a new stage in Israel's history. Samuel is the first person to occupy an office as prophet. Up till now, God had spoken through people here and there, but now um, he's going to speak through Samuel pretty much over a long period of time. Look at verse 11 in chapter 2. It says, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So again, here's the immediate fruit of Hannah's training in that Samuel was actually a blessing to have around the temple. Even as a three-year-old, he had to be obedient and able and willing to help with little chores that were age-appropriate. One book suggested that maybe he opened doors or retrieved things for Eli. Then in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. God calls to Samuel, probably remember the story where he keeps, Samuel keeps mistaking it for Eli's voice. The Bible says that at this time Samuel was still a boy. It was also before the ark was captured in a battle. So this was early in Samuel's life of service. Verse 7 of chapter 3 says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. So we observe from this that Samuel is obedient before he knows Yahweh in a personal way. His obedience was not something that saved him or earned him any favor with God, but I think it's encouraging as moms or as women that work with children just to see that there is benefit to teaching children to obey even when they have not yet been saved. The obedience is not an end in itself, but it is beneficial and it's safe for, the ch- for our children, for any children that you're working with, and it will be a blessing to them after being saved to have learned obedience. Okay, then in chapter 2, verse 16, we're kind of jumping around, going back to chapter 2 now. Verse 16 um, says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Then in verse 26, we read, now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. And then, as I said before, chapters 3 to 12 kind of fill in the rest of Samuel's life. One of the best commendations that Samuel receives is that Yahweh was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel truly heard God's words and he was faithful to deliver them to whomever God had intended them for. Sometimes it was to a specific person, sometimes it was to the nation as a whole, but Samuel was faithful. He walked in the ways of Yahweh and he was trusted by the people, including the first two kings in Israel's history, Saul and David. After Eli died and the Ark of the Covenant was captured, Shiloh was no longer the place where people went to worship because the Ark was gone. The specific presence of the Lord was gone. So then Samuel starts to go on a circuit between three, I think they're probably major towns in Israel, and he leads worship and feasts, and he judges the people at those places. And then it says after he would go on that circuit, he would go back to Ramah, which was his boyhood home, to live. And I just thought, oh, that's so neat. Maybe if Hannah was still alive, she got to have a little bit more of a closer relationship with her son at that point. Um, I'm I'm not sure how the timing on when the ark was captured in that battle happened, but it's a possibility. So the nation was in desperate need of godly leaders during Hannah's day. Her desire to see God exalted and to be a godly mother and bear a son and train him and give him to full-time service came to fruition after much heartache disappointment, and affliction. The fires of affliction culminated in desperate prayer, and those fires no doubt purified Hannah's heart. This made her even more fit to raise a godly son and to even give praise to God publicly. She reaped a harvest and she bore fruit for God. The fruit of her life blessed her husband, her son, no doubt her subsequent children. We see, I don't even think I read that verse, that she had, uh, I think, I can't remember, three sons and two daughters. She had more children after Samuel. The fruit of her life blessed the nation of Israel, King David, and even us women in the United States in the year 2016. We don't know how God will use our affliction or our lives, but we can trust him just as wholeheartedly as Hannah did, that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. So let's talk about some implications from this biography of Hannah. All of us in the room probably can relate to at least one aspect of Hannah's life. Um, Maybe you're living with affliction of some sort. Maybe it even is childlessness, or maybe it's just like her, you're not receiving something that you really desire. It could be you're married to a man who loves God, but whose sinful decision is creating a difficult living situation. Or you could be just—it could be your own sin, and you're reaping the consequences of it. Um, Whatever, whatever aspect, I'm sure we can identify with part of. Hannah. Um, So what specifically can we, what are some implications we can draw specifically from this Israelite woman who lived thousands of years ago? First of all, follow Hannah's example of following God. She is not easily distracted from following God. And by following God, I mean doing and being what he wants her to do and be. As far as her own revelation, what she's received from God, she knows what God expects of her, and she does it. She follows after him. It's not like she's running forward towards God, but looking sideways. You know, just um, there's a lot of distractions that could have happened along the way, and Penina is the first one. She doesn't really get distracted by Penina personally. I mean, the, the hardship of the um, provoking was there, but it doesn't seem like her focus is actually on Penina as a person her focus was, I can't wait to get to God in prayer and pray and just pour out my heart to him. Um, she also doesn't really get distracted by Eli. She's not distracted by the injustice of his rebuke. She's also not um, distracted even when she receives the answer to her prayer, which is Samuel. She seems to just keep her eyes focused on Yahweh and, okay, I have this child that's, um I've asked for and I'm going to train him. I'm going to give him back to the Lord. She doesn't lose focus once she receives what she wanted. Her love for God is obvious in how she talks about him, how she knows him when she prays. Our Wellspring Discipline 1 is really similar to Hannah's first priority. So be encouraged by Hannah's love for God in a time when revelation from God was a lot less than what we have now. It was also a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There were dangers from other nations as well as dangers Within the 12 tribes of Israel, there was a lot of sexual immorality. The worship of God was not according to biblical standards. It was mixed with pagan, sinful practices. And I would even say that the world Hannah lived in was more morally degenerate than the society we live in. Her love for God shines like a bright light against the dark backdrop of her world. The second implication we can take away is that prayer is a privilege and a comfort. God has given us access to himself through Christ. We can come before his throne boldly because we are counted righteous since Jesus has traded us his righteousness for our sin and our condemnation. Since we have this privilege, we would be remiss to forego the comfort and the help we receive from pouring out our soul to the Lord. The third implication for our lives is that growing in humility is appropriate as well as beautiful. Humility is appropriate for us as well as beautiful. Hannah's name means grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's receiving something that we don't deserve. Hannah's humility displayed itself in her ability to bestow grace on the people in her life. To people that were close to her, like Elkanah, her husband, and to people that she didn't know as well, such as Eli. Gracious behavior, by definition, is not dependent on another person's worthiness, kindness, or respectability. I don't know what Hannah looked like, physically, but I do know that she was beautiful. She was beautiful according to God's definition. God tells us that a beautiful woman has a gentle and a quiet spirit. That is, a spirit which is calm and still because it is trusting God. It's not fretful and distrusting of God. Hannah had a lofty view of God. She knew God, and that is what produced humility in her. I'm going to close by reading Psalm 142. It's a psalm that David wrote, and I read this, I think it was last year when I was doing this lesson for the first time, and I thought, and it must have been right around the time I was studying, because I thought, this is like, I feel like Hannah could have written this. So I want to close by reading the Psalm of David, Um, I just think it's encouraging and it sounds like Hannah it says with my voice I cry out to the Lord with my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord I pour out my complaint before him I tell my trouble before him when my spirit faints within me you know my way in the path where I walk they have hidden a trap for me look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me no refuge remains to me no one cares for my soul I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to just be in your word and to hear from you. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us and that we have recorded for us um, part of Hannah's life. God, we know that the things that you have chosen to um, put in Scripture have been written for our edification, for our learning, um, to help us. And God, I pray that we would learn much from Hannah. God, you were faithful to her. You were merciful to her and kind to her. And she loved you. And God, I pray that we would be like Hannah, that we would be amazed at your character, your sovereign control, your kindness, and um, that we would worship you, that we would um, submit to you and see ourselves as your servant. And God, I pray for um, just the next little bit of time as the women are in discussion groups, I just pray that you would guide the conversations and I pray it would be edifying and beneficial for everyone. Thank you for your word, in Jesus' name, amen.